Welcome back to part two of our COVID-19 special episode. Featured in this episode are Professor Nicole Gilroy, who's the head of the Department of Infectious Diseases at Westmead Hospital and is a former member of TAGI, Professor Sanjay Swaminathan, who's the head of the Department of Immunology and Allergy at Westmead and Blacktown Hospitals, Dr. Joe Karizna, Senior Emergency Staff Specialist at Westmead Hospital, Dr. James Tadros, Emergency Staff Specialist at Nepean Hospital, and Dr. Caroline Barn, who's an Infectious Diseases Advanced Trainee who is currently working as a Public Health Registrar with the Ministry of Health. Our second paper is called Vaccine-Induced Immune Thrombotic Thrombocytopenia and Cerebral Venous Sinus Thrombosis Post-COVID-19 Vaccination, a systematic review by Sharifian Dorshe et al., published in the Journal of the Neurological Sciences in August 2021. It's being presented by Dr. Vincent Sui, who's an emergency registrar here at Westmead Hospital. The authors of these paper basically look to answer a couple of questions. And I guess they just go through the general gist of, you know, the the disease itself. And in particular, you know, which patients get it, the clinical features, the symptom onset, abnormal investigations, complications, patient outcomes, investigation pathways, and and treatment. Uh, Ever since we've found out that you know, at the AstraZeneca vaccine and the Johnson Johnson vaccine, they, they can cause um, thrombotic disease. We, our emergency department has been inundated with patients who either have come in themselves or have been sent in by their, their GP with concerns of clots. From what we know already, the, it's a very rare disease. And so we're finding ourselves having to sort of play, you know, needle in a haystack to try to pick out which of these patients have this disease. So in terms of their search, their terms were for the AstraZeneca vaccine, Johnson Johnson and the Janssen COVID vaccine. They only used English papers, uh, which is I had a little bit of an issue with. Um, of the 877 papers that they got, they had 12 papers um, on AstraZeneca and two further papers on Johnson Johnson. And these mainly consisted of case series, reports, original articles and letters. Considering that AstraZeneca is, uh, you know, a vaccine that's being distributed around the world and how rare the disease is, we'll probably have a bit of bias coming in by only limiting our papers to English. But I can probably understand there'd be sort of difficulties needing papers to be translated. So then they also go through the, the European Medicines Agency's Pharmacovigilance Risk Assessment Committee's numbers of reported cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis post AstraZeneca vaccines, and they have reported 169 cases after 34 million doses. So that's about five in a million. They don't say whether that's, uh, you know, those numbers are a single or double dose, but we can see that, you know, it's it's a very rare condition. And, and those numbers sort of reflect the, the baseline uh, numbers of CVST and prior to the AstraZeneca vaccine. So the paper then also goes through the clinical features and there's, there's nothing new compared to uh, CVST that we've seen in the past um, from other conditions and uh, the vaccine-induced version. Unfortunately, the most common feature is headache. And one of the most common features of symptoms after any of these COVID vaccines is headache. I guess it's more of the timing of the onset of their symptoms, which is important as well. 
So patients can either have gradual or thunderclap headaches. There's no specific pattern or quality. They can have an aura and it doesn't always reflect where the lesion is. And from what we know from, you know, a CBST in other patients is that, you know, they're broadly categorized into sort of three groups. So you have patients who come in with symptoms that, are, um, repl that replicate sort of isolated intracranial hypertension, you get some postural symptoms, vomiting and visual symptoms. You get patients who present with focal deficits and seizures. And finally, you get patients who get encephalopathic and have multifocal deficit and, and seizures as well. So who gets it? In their case series, there were 54 cases and 36 of them were women. And that's what we've seen in terms of other sort of studies as well, that women have a greater predilection to getting the disease. And it's also uh, younger people as well. The other risk factors they found reflected the uh, risk factors that patients uh, who get CBST without having the vaccine have. So these include pregnancy, autoimmune diseases, oral contraceptive pill, increased you know, states of estrogen as well. In terms of the symptom onset, uh, their patients, most of their symptoms had their onset within a week, and the range was from 14 to 19 days. In terms of the investigations, they found that there was a moderate to severe platelet abnormality, though they did recognize that some patients can present with relatively normal platelets and, and they might be in the earliest parts of their disease, which makes, um, you know, sort of picking out these patients very difficult. All of them had positive D-dimers as well as platelet factor for immunoglobulin as well. Complications and patient outcomes. In terms of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine papers, out of the 49 cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, 49%, 24 of those patients had intracranial hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage. For our listeners, basically the sort of pathophysiology behind intracranial bleeds and uh, CVST is that there's a buildup of back pressure. And so a significant number of these patients do end up getting bleeds. Finally, we come to the diagnosis pathway that they suggest so that there's four criteria that they fork of. So must have had AstraZeneca or Johnson Johnson within the last 30 days. Presence of moderate or severe thrombocytopenia. If their platelets are normal, it might just mean that they're in the early stages of their disease. Presence of thrombosis and positive platelet factor for assay. They also suggest that you get a blood film with brinogen levels, D-dimer, and a coagulation study. Lastly, they finish off with the treatment that they suggest. So one is to avoid platelets to prevent exacerbating any further sort of coagulation or consumption of clotting factors. And two, anticoagulation. It might seem a little bit counterintuitive considering so many of these patients get intracranial bleeds, but because it's the back pressure that's causing the issue, clearing that obstruction actually improves symptoms in a lot of these patients. So even if they have intracranial hemorrhage in CVST, it's not a contraindication to getting anticoagulation. Now, this paper said that they recommended against heparin, and their papers basically ended in May of this year. However, on up to date, they have further papers that have come out which show that there might not be any harm from giving heparin, and that the heparin is basically attaching to a different site at the platelet factor four. And so they might not be interacting, and it, it may be possible that they might actually be competing for, for that spot. 
So the other treatments that you can use are DOAX, things like rivaroxaban, pixaban, as well as direct thrombin inhibitors. So your um, bilvalrudin and your indirect uh, factor 10A inhibitors. So your uh, Fonda Paradox medications. Overall, uh, I thought basically this is a, a rare condition. It was a rare condition before, you know, these vaccines and it's still a rare condition now. Unfortunately, it is associated with a, a significant mortality and in terms of their suggestions and their data, you know, catching these patients early is the, probably the most important part of, of the treatment process, though it is a very difficult population to try and sift out and see who has the illness or not. Thanks, Vinny. That was a really good summary. In the interest of moving on to higher yield things, we'll probably skim over the methodology for this paper, although I would say that for a systematic review meta-analysis, the methodology section in the paper was brief at best. There was possibly one paragraph describing paper selection, which is in stark contrast to the Cochrane review that we talk about in part three. Given that you're currently working in ED, and, and I also get um, comment from our other emergency consultants in regards to this, how does this paper help us sift through the masses of worried world with headaches and abdominal pains that have been presenting to the emergency department since the media has started publicizing these issues? I don't think it does. A lot of us are aware of the presentation features. You know, the hematology team has given us a pathway in terms of how to identify these patients. But the underlying thing in all of this is that it's a very difficult disease in the first place to try and diagnose. The symptoms are very vague, non-specific, and you can have patients who are very early on in their disease as well. In terms of our pathways here at Westmead Hospital, there is a suggestion from the hematologist is that if you do a platelet level and it's normal, it's very unlikely that they have VIT, which is true. But at the same time, you know, there is the question of how many of these patients who come in with normal platelets then drop them afterwards. And that's probably, uh, you know, sort of another question that we need to look into. I think just having this uh, sort of patient group in mind and um, keeping it as a part of our differential list and, um, you know, following down the appropriate, you know, investigation pathways is, uh, I think we're doing as much as we can already. Thanks for that, Vinny. Joe, did you have any insights about how WestMedDD has been, I guess, managing the, the worried well outbreak? As Vinny sort of mentioned, and as you all know, we see a lot of these patients with query vaccine-related, you know, complications, particularly uh, the VITT. I think from an ED point of view, look, it hasn't been too much of a struggle, I don't think, to sift out, you know, which patients we're really concerned about. And I guess the article sort of highlighted the flowcharts that we use, like particularly the ASIM guide or our um, LHD-specific ones, are really reflective of, you know, all of the diagnostic criteria that are mentioned in, in the article. So I think once a patient presents, it's not too difficult to work out who we're really concerned about. And I think the pathways that we have are pretty clear they all talk about the platelet count. They all talk about, you know, D-dimers and particularly the time frame. I guess it's 
easy to rule out some patients. I've had a lot presenting, you know, two days after a vaccine or, you know, patients um, that haven't even had the AstraZeneca vaccine. And I guess um, the, the other big group is patients with an isolated raised D-dimer. GPs are ordering blood tests that they don't really have a good feel for, have never really had to use on mass before like D-dimers and fibrinogen levels. It's not really surprising that, you know, they're concerned by, you know, abnormal tests. Whereas I think in ED, we have the benefit, you know, some of us have seen cavernous sinus thrombosis in the past uh, and the complications. So, you know, we're, we're able to recognize a possible case. Um, we've also got established pathways that we're using every day and, and just a feel for, you know, D-dimer testing as well, which we use, you know, to evaluate a couple of other conditions. So I find it's quite easy to reassure patients. And what I usually do is also call the GP and explain why an isolated D-dimer is not a concern or why, in fact, we're not doing imaging for a suspected CVT. So it was a good article in that it really just reinforced that the available evidence is reflected in the current pathways that we use. That's really a holistic care to be sort of closing the loop with GPs as well. I think that sort of really helps in terms of a whole of system approach. James? I think the way that the AstraZeneca vaccine sort of and all this negative hype around it developed was probably not fruitful for the general public. I think it's one of the biggest sort of public relations disasters probably this decade in that I think if we look at the flip side and we see maybe the net sort of risk that's to the public and to the detriment of the public that we've released all this information or that all this has come to the fore and been hyped up by the media, I think especially in the midst of an outbreak, people refusing vaccinations that are available to them will probably lead to mortality, whether that's demonstrable or not, I'm not sure. That's the flip side. And we really need to think about how this has, especially with such a low incidence, how we think about how the public interacts with the healthcare system or interacts with public with, with medical literature um, has completely changed in the last year. And it even just goes back to simple things. You know, we know that hits occurs and we all know that hits occurs, but do we consent every patient who receives heparin coming into hospitals? Do we tell them, you know, there's this tiny risk that, that this might happen? Yet the consent process around AstraZeneca and it's become a very public consent process. That's been sort of completely different to anything else we've done. We've never really spent so much time warning people of such rare complications, especially considering there's so much benefit to the vaccination as opposed to maybe other treatments we do, which don't actually have that much of a benefit. So I think it raises a lot of things around what our public relations are like with the public in terms of the healthcare system and, and public healthcare especially, as well as, you know, consent processes and how that's going to affect us for the future. Are people going to expect to know all these tiny complications and be able to make their own decisions? And will that lead to people rejecting a lot of treatments that we know are, are really useful and are really beneficial for them based on some tiny risks? And I think there was a lot of anxiety around this vaccination to begin with. I, I do some work at one of the vaccination hubs and we see a huge number of people even immediately post-vaccination with, with reactions who are subsequently sort of just reassured and sent home. But a lot of that is just the anxiety that's been built up by the media and hasn't necessarily been managed on a public relations mass scale very well just because it's not something we've had to do a lot of in the past but has obviously become a major issue, especially in light of the vaccinations being very new, having some complications associated with them. From my perspective, this is actually a very immunological condition in terms of the pathophysiology. 
I found actually that figure very, very interesting here. It shows how potentially the DNA from the vaccine might be interacting with platelet factor four to cause these autoantibodies and driving this process. And in terms of treatment, a lot of the treatments are immune-based in terms of like IVIG, potentially plasmapheresis, which, which hasn't been used a lot in Australia. And, you know, also changing the trajectory from what was described in the paper here is, you know, almost you know, half-half in terms of fatality. Uh, in Australia, it's, it's much lower than that because we have access to, to good treatments like IVIG, for example, and, and also early recognition. It's a very interesting disease and we've managed to, to get up to speed very quickly with the pathophysiology and also recognising the platelet factor 4 antibodies and, and the similarities with, with HITS. So, so I, think, I think we've done very well overall to recognise this syndrome very quickly, how to recognise it, how to treat it. And the mortality is, you know, there are still the odd patient who dies, unfortunately, from this, but it's not a, you know, what was initially thought to be an almost universal fatal condition, if you've got this, to, to one with fairly low mortality, and most people actually get through this. So, I think it speaks to where modern medicine is at in terms of the speed of how we're able to recognize and respond in recent times, both from the vaccination point of view, just remarkable to be able to develop a vaccine for a novel virus in such a short time frame that has such high efficacy. And then also, as you alluded to, in terms of recognizing this complication and effective treatment strategies being implemented quite quickly. What you were saying about the immunology segues well into um, my next question, which was that one of the factors quite widely discussed in terms of vaccine hesitancy has been the safety of vaccines in the context of various underlying health conditions. And in particular, the one that we tend to hear about the most are the various autoimmune problems that tend to be raised as justification for not being vaccinated. So I was just wondering in that regard, which autoimmune conditions are of concern in, in relation to vaccination, if any, and what does your advice tend to be in that regard? Look, I've had a lot of patients actually approach me to, to ask me whether they, they could be exempt from vaccinations. Not, not a huge number. Um, I think there are concerns about exacerbating their own underlying autoimmune condition. Look, largely our advice is, is very similar across the board that we highly recommend vaccinations. The reason for that is that often these patients, especially the more severe cases, uh, you're on immune suppressing medications and your outcome if you did get COVID is going to be worse. And even though the responses to vaccines are probably going to be less compared to say someone who's not on those medications uh, we still recommend it because you know there is there is some benefit from from vaccination so the way i sell it to patients is that i say you know what's the risk of you getting COVID? if you got COVID, you know what will happen to you on those immune suppressing medications versus the very very small risk of having a side effect from a vaccination and most patients understand that it's a risk versus benefit and, and I try and tailor it to that patient so it's not just a generic piece of advice. Having said that, there's still a few patients who listen to my spiel and they sort of go, oh, look, that's, that's great, but I've done my own homework, you know, and got all this information and I've decided to go down this alternative path. And look, I, I try not to be too dismissive. I, I think it's, you know, everyone is, there is so much information out there, but I do try and put it back to the simple thing of you know what happens if you got COVID in your current situation with your autoimmune condition and the medications that you're on. In fact, I don't think that there's really any autoimmune condition where you would really say you shouldn't be vaccinated. I can't think of anyone. Uh, Elaine Barra is an interesting, interesting point. 
But I've had a look at this recently with Guillain Barre, and, and most neurological societies also say that you can have the vaccine. So, so I, I can't think of a single autoimmune condition where you would sort of, you know, be very hesitant about, you know, the vaccines. I suppose the only proviso is things like antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, where yes, okay, that is an autoimmune condition that predisposes you to clotting, and you would sort of veer towards say the mRNA vaccines as opposed to AstraZeneca. But you know, that's a very specific example where we would we would prefer one vaccine over the other. I've done my own research is going to be the unfortunate catchphrase of 2021. The information overload issue has definitely been a substantial problem in this pandemic that James already alluded to with vaccine hesitancy and people's apprehensions really getting in the way of effective public health responses. I've had discussions with some nursing colleagues, even just the other day with my neighbor who have their children or themselves fully vaccinated in terms of the usual vaccination um, regime, but we're just understandably a bit apprehensive and a bit fearful in terms of the, the information overload that is surrounding us all at the moment. What do you guys tell your neighbours or friends or family from non-medical backgrounds to reassure them about the risks of vaccination? And, and further to the point, what sort of things that do you recommend that to other medical professionals in, in terms of communication? So I think it's conveying risk and it's sort of picking up on what James has said. I mean, one of the things that has been very problematic with our vaccination rollout has been that we've got two vaccines. So often people will say, well, I'll wait for vaccine two, which is the Pfizer, you know, because I deem that to be safer and there's been a lot of bad press in the UK, for example. They haven't had as much of that luxury. So getting back to your question, I think we have to really, as healthcare professionals, relay to people what it is like to have COVID, to, to be requiring oxygen as a young person in itself is very concerning, to see people hospitalised for days, to need intensive care, and then the sequelae of the disease. You know, people just don't come to hospital and get over COVID. They may have enduring complications that may impact their quality of life in the long term. So I think those are the things that need to be related versus a vaccine. And, you know, we've got to relay this risk. The risk of cavernous sinus thrombosis is in the order of two per 100,000. And um, as Sanjay has said, you know, in, in the Australian context, case fatality rates from that are extremely low, like 3%. So in terms of safety, we need to be relaying that. The complications of COVID far outweigh the risk of vaccination. So I think trying to convey those sorts of figures uh, is very important. I think now also in New South Wales and as they were in Victoria last year, we're at a tipping point where clearly the risk of getting this disease and having nasty outcomes far exceeds the risk, the very small risk of complications from, from vaccination. So, and also I think we are in a, a country, just getting back to what um, George said, you know, we, we've also got the privilege here of having very good systems for identifying adverse events. You know, we've got very enhanced surveillance where we're actively looking for complications of vaccination. We've got actually very good passive surveillance mechanisms whereby people have many mechanisms by which they can report adverse events. With this particular vaccine, we're probably seeing enhanced reporting you know, in, and we may have missed things with vaccines in, you know, such as influenza that may not have even reached the radar because we haven't been so switched on. So I think, you know, we should be reassured that we're looking for complications, we're identifying them, and we've got a, a very good health system that can manage 
the rare complications when they arise versus this rampant outbreak that we have at the moment where we're seeing young people who should be absolutely getting the vaccine, either vaccine, you know, they shouldn't be waiting for Pfizer, they should be getting AstraZeneca. And, you know, as a healthcare professional, I can put my hand on my heart and say, I've told my own children that, don't wait, you know, get the vaccine. I think it's actually very important we as health professionals relay what we're doing as well, you know, that we are advocating for vaccination, we're advocating it in for our own family members, our loved ones. We recognise implications of this disease are and they're not, you know, I wouldn't wish it upon any young person to get COVID and to have the sequelae of this disease that could be really serious. I completely agree with all of Nikki's points. And my one and only shift to the COVID ward is, you know, after you see a ward full of sick COVID patients, it, it changes your perspective in terms of what this disease is. And seeing, you know, young people, pregnant women, you know, on oxygen, you know, so close to intensive care, it sort of changes your perspective on this. So I think that that's, uh, that's something that's happened since I've done that shift, which is interesting. Um, I suppose the other point I tell patients is that we don't actually know we can't predict which patient who gets infected will do well or badly. Because some people, some of my younger patients are well, look, I'm young, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be fine. But we actually can't tell which patients are going to do well, which patients aren't going to do so well. You know, everyone I know is vaccinated, you know, particularly from, from the medical fraternity and the healthcare system is a strong point as well. But I, I get a lot of patients ask me, but have you been vaccinated? As a sort of reflex question. Yeah. Uh, and, and I find that interesting because I say, yes, of course I, I am. But I suppose earlier on when we didn't have access, that was an interesting point. And I suppose, yeah, I'm, I'm planning to get vaccinated. But now everyone's vaccinated. I think that's a pretty moot point at the moment. So, so I, think, I think we as role models should be sort of promoting vaccination as much as possible. And, uh, and I think all of the points there are really, really important. One of the strongest things that I can say in favour of the AstraZeneca is that my wife got it. I don't know if this is still happening. I think it's unusual. When I went to get even our Pfizer vaccine, as you enter, you're bombarded with a whole list of questions on whether you've ever had hits before, if you've had a clot before. And I guess I'm just curious as to the utility of those questions and what purpose they have, because I think if, if our overall advice is that you should get the vaccine anyway, I just, yeah, what, what is the utility of those questions? So, so Pfizer vaccine, they're probably irrelevant, um, but uh, for AstraZeneca, there are some contraindications to its use. So if you've had a history of uh, central venous thrombosis, that would be a contraindication. Uh, we didn't touch on also the fact that there can be unusual thrombotic complications such as splanchnic, hepatic vein, portal vein thromboses, which also could be a signal of bits uh, complications. Antiphospholipid antibody is the other one that would be a contraindication according to Otagi. And what has been recently added is the capillary leak syndrome. So they're the conditions that, that should perhaps direct people down the Pfizer pathway. I guess what we also don't know, and one of the things, asking those questions up front, even if you are getting Pfizer, may not be a bad idea because we assume that we're going to have the vaccine supply. Um, and, you know, if there was a rupture to our access to vaccines, we might have to be going down the pathway of mixed schedules. So, you know, getting Pfizer and getting your second AstraZeneca, we're not there yet, but certainly they've had to confront that situation in other countries where they've assumed they're going to have a supply to give the second vaccine, but they've had to use, you know, and they've done studies on this that actually show that it's probably 
quite immunogenic, you know, having a mixed schedule more so than getting the same vaccine. So I guess asking those questions up front might be at least one way of um, assessing that risk up front in case people might need a mixed schedule. I just sort of wanted to add something, I guess, going back to uh, alternate interests or other people I've spoken to. While I agree with everything that's been said about the statistics and what they show um, and the demonstrable benefit versus the risk, I think even if you just look at politics, like simply a lot of great politicians have lost based on platforms that rely on on that sort of approach um, where you're just trying to present facts and things. The politicians that tend to win are the ones that go down to more emotive advertising, presenting individual case studies rather than data as a whole. That's what provokes, really, really actually provokes people. And I think a big part of just even talking to people coming forward to being vaccinated, especially from certain um, cultural communities, a lot of the reason has been them seeing single young deaths on TV of people that they might identify with. And I know it's not the, necessarily the right thing to do sort of clinically in terms of presenting the facts, um, but that is a big part of if we're, if we're going to move towards actually trying to convince anyone, unfortunately, we might have to stoop down to a level of basic advertising. And that's been some of the ways that I've managed to convince even patients in ED asking me, are you vaccinated? They say no. Why not? And they're like, oh, I'm not sure. And I'm like, what about that person on the news? What if that was you? I've only, granted it's only worked a handful of times, but it's a quick statement and it's easier than presenting a whole bunch of facts and figures to someone who might not necessarily even have a higher level of education, any sort of statistical, even basic mathematics. But that sort of thing convinces people. So I know it's not generally what we're used to doing, especially when we run through any sort of consent process or when we're presenting benefits to patients. But if we know that it's the right thing to do, which we do from the statistics, we should be able to convey that in a way that convinces people to do the best thing that's for them. We can present them with the facts as well, but what's actually going to push them over the line will be these emotive responses. So I, I think we have to actually think about how we approach convincing people on that point. James, uh, a really good point. And I mean, what's been fascinating about our approach to promoting vaccination in Australia is that it's not really linked to the adverse effects of not having a vaccine. It seems to be linked to the freedom that vaccination will give you. So freedom to travel, the freedom to mix with your loved ones, they're kind of avoiding <laughs> the discussions around how bad things can be if you don't get vaccinated. We're sort of going down this pathway of, you know, promote vaccination because you'll be freer to do more things, which is kind of interesting when you compare previous public health campaigns against diseases, obviously not vaccine preventable, but HIV, you know, the Grim Reaper sort of approach, very different very different with this. There was that New South Wales Health ad with that young woman who was in significant respiratory distress that I think people found extraordinarily confronting. It certainly made me very uncomfortable. And I think that was an attempt to try and do what James was talking about in terms of communicating the message in another manner. It was just very interesting because I agree, Dr. Gilroy, I can't remember a health campaign after HIV that is focused so much on the negative aspects of contracting a disease, but then it was put in stark relief when I saw this come out on Facebook on YouTube a couple of weeks ago, I think. Um, and I think it was an attempt at taking a stab at what James was talking about in terms of trying to make the the risks seem more, more realistic and, and certainly more in your face than was otherwise being done through the current sort of communication campaigns that were being run. Caroline, you're currently working with the Ministry of Health. 
Could you just give us a little bit of insight into, I guess, some of the, the strategies that have been used in terms of messaging and, and communicating with the community through this outbreak? Yeah, sure. I'd love to share some experience um, as a clinician entering the Ministry of Health space. I think specifically we've had a lot of meetings with regards to messaging. There were lots of questions about whether or not the messaging was really getting out there to people who weren't engaging with the 11 o'clock report, for example. We brought in some sort of um, cultural liaison officers and uh, people from sort of different religious groups and really tried to address some of the key gaps within messaging to each of these groups. So I think the public health response is very much engaged with these subgroups as much as we can. And we have our media department looking at all sorts of different ways of getting this message out. They've since made a TikTok account and an Instagram account with large amounts of followers very quickly. And some of their really popular posts that are also chaired by our public health medical advisors, where you can just ask a Q&A to a high-level public health medical professional and you'll get that answered. So um, they're really trying many different approaches to reach as many different audience members as we can. It's really important that those people sort of engage from the get-go. There are some people who, you know, are very staunchly anti-government, anti-health. They can pose a huge challenge from a public health response point of view in prior outbreaks in terms of what they aim to do. It's about empowering people to make good health decisions. Now we're having to also include quite authoritative measures sometimes that include police because people aren't really complying sometimes with their close contact or their positive case isolation. You need to bring police in and the defence force in. So it's a multi-pronged approach. I think that's been quite unprecedented. I wanted to share something that I found really helpful Sometimes I felt that we were sort of working in a silo in a hospital and, you know, treating our positive patients and they just felt like they kept coming in or, or they could keep coming in, for example. And I wanted to share some of the things I've learned in terms of the broader views of infection control and the strategies that the ministry are working on, as well as the incident management team structures that, you know, we even have, you know, as an emergency operations centre within our health district, you've heard of this EOC acronym. And I think understanding those has really helped me feel like we're working together with this wider public health response. And, you know, we've spent some time talking about advocacy as well. So in particular, just looking at macro strategies such as vaccination and say some of our policies in border closures um, to more administrative policies that affect behaviour change, such as, such as physical distancing, our square metre rule, limiting interactions between households and mask wearing, for example, all those sort of you know, other strategies that are helping keep patients out of hospital systems, which is a huge concern for all of us in terms of making sure that our system is not overwhelmed. And some of the key structures within incident management teams that help move this forward are, you know, our planning people, our operations people, our logistics people, and our communications people. And specifically for this operation, I mean, it's massive. And I think we should be really proud of our response and also our individual role in, in this response. So we've had to bring on hotel quarantine people, COVID testing clinic people, airport people, pathology people, aged care people, police operations. And so I think having a broader understanding of that has really allowed me to understand that we're not just working in a hospital environment. We are really working together in this public health response and there's a multi-pronged approach. And I think just with, in relation to clinicians and advocacy, if anyone does like stats, um, the, the Burnett Institute has released some projections specifically for the second wave um, in Sydney. So I'm not sure if you've seen that, but it was released two days ago. 
they sort of talk about uh, the impact of vaccines in terms of what we've diverted. So between June and December, with the restrictions combined with the original vaccine rollout, we've averted um, half a million infections and 4,830 deaths. Um, so this is really specific to Sydney. So, And then with the additional 530 Pfizer doses that we received, we've averted an extra 24,000 diagnoses and 250 deaths. It was actually so nice to hear data about things that you can't really see in terms of the effect that we're preventing. So yeah, anyway, those are my two cents. Yeah, thank you, Caroline. That's always been the problem with vaccination, isn't it? Is that the success of vaccination is something that's not quite tangible and doesn't add something for you, but more prevents an adverse effect. That was a really interesting insight into, I guess, the new strategies that the ministry is using. And I guess we're in a strange position in health at the moment where I think sometimes we're finding that potentially people that we view as less health educated in terms of these social media influences are potentially more effective health communicators than we are, which is a both humbling and frightening insight, I think. Talking about public health, I think an often underestimated role of the emergency department is the public health role. I think that we're one of the specialties that deals with one of the largest cross sections of the wider population. And so I was wondering from your point of view, and, and I'll also ask our emergency specialists to, to comment on this, what role can the emergency clinicians and emergency nursing staff play in a wider public health response? We do have a lot of contact with patients, but unfortunately, I think one of the limitations is that a lot of that contact isn't necessarily positive. It's just in times of life where people are usually struggling with other ailments and it's really hard to make those interventions. I alluded to like a simple one around vaccination where I just have a simple discussion, but often we don't always have that. Uh, that luxury of time. I think this is something, uh, I'm not sure about the, the rest of New South Wales, but it's definitely something in Western Sydney that we're, we're lagging a bit behind in terms of even compared to other places in the world. A good example of that being uh, buprenorphine discharge usage, which I think is being used in America, obviously, for patients who come in with an opiate dependence, uh, being offered that in ED, even at a nursing level, and being sent home with that, and or even being sent home with naloxone in case of their own overdose or a friend's overdose from ED is something that's used overseas, but not necessarily used here. So I think that's somewhere where there's actually a lot of improvement. There's also things like, I guess, smoking cessation advice. I've given people brochures before, and there are various brochures that are made for discharge and there's, um, I don't know if you guys have seen the little orange booklets where you can give out to patients that just have crisis numbers for drug and alcohol, mental health, social housing, things like that. So we have a very, very simplistic approach, but there's definitely scope for improvement, but we'll require more resources. And unfortunately, we're, we're a bit stretched. I guess I can just add some comments just on a sort of grassroots and doing a lot of shifts in the ED. I actually find it quite difficult to strike a good balance between you know, being overly paternalistic and letting patients have a bit of autonomy with their decisions and then advocating, you know, the best medical choices, which is to have vaccines. So it's a difficult balance to strike, you know, just as I have, you know, firm views um, that are based in science, you know, about benefits of vaccines, the patient that's, you know, facing me also has um, their own strong views. So I, I find the conversation quite challenging because, you know, patients are coming with very firm and, and, and fixed views. It's just an added challenge to the communications that are already going on between ourselves um, and patients. You know, I also see staff, you know, being quite frustrated. And I guess 
that's something that you know we also need to be aware of um you know we we sort of treat a lot of other um conditions alcohol dependence you know poorly controlled diabetes there doesn't seem to be this um sort of uh this degree of tension um with communicating you know patients lifestyle and other choices around those other conditions i, I find it a challenging conversation um, to have with patients in the current climate Thank you, Joe. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It, it is a difficult period at the moment. I, I guess, again, just going back to the people doing your own research type of situation, but the parallel between other lifestyle illnesses is an interesting one and that we might need to check ourselves with occasionally. I certainly have found that the emergency department can be an effective place in which to undertake these interventions because people are often quite scared. It's you know, although emergency department can be a bit of a misnomer sometimes to us as clinicians, it often isn't for the patients that come. And so um, that being a big event for them to, to have to present can tend to lend some utility when I say, if you don't stop smoking now, you are going to die very soon. They tend to take that on board a bit more than when their GP does it, is my biased opinion. Caroline, from, from a systemic perspective, could you comment on that a little bit as well? Everyone's brought some excellent points with regards to patient experiences, which I think is such a credit to them as well, because everyone's been talking about this public health sort of role of ED and public health response in relation to, you know, like, how can we do our best for our patients? To me, it's also about managing staff safety and staff well-being and making sure that we protect each other and protect our ability to continue helping people who come through the door, whether they have COVID or non-COVID issues. And so making sure that everyone, you know, feels very comfortable and is up to date with their PPE, for example, and, you know, cohorting, you know, these policies that protect each other and protect you from taking particular disease home, for example. And then I think th those things really need to be mentioned as well. But in terms of broader response, I think it's really about us all working together. And I appreciate that even as a clinician myself in a hospital setting, it sometimes feels very difficult to make a huge impact in that one moment. But, you know, there is data about being opportunistic about, you know, smoking cessation, et cetera, and, you know, a 10-minute conversation or a five-minute conversation can be a trigger for a change that unfortunately is really hard for ED physicians to measure sometimes because you don't necessarily see them all the time. A measure of your success can be that you never see them again, which is hard to measure. There has been a lot of talk about the advice that has been provided from Atagi in relation to the AstraZeneca vaccine and a lot of use of the retrospectoscope in terms of the various guidelines and fluctuations that have occurred over the recent 12 months. Could you give us some insight into the process that Atagi uses to balance risks when formulating their guidelines? And I guess also just how do we explain to the public the changes in, in these guidelines as we make them when it can be, seem a little bit daunting that one minute we're promoting AstraZeneca, then we're not, then we are. So people know ATAGI is constituted by many disciplines. So, you know, usually there will be public health uh, science, particularly immunisation researchers, people who are at the front line in terms of state vaccination programs, infectious diseases, microbiology, paediatric and adult. ATAGI was really set up to give advice to government about the national immunisation program, what vaccines should be on that program, what vaccines will deliver the greatest benefit to the greatest number. And to get on the National Immunisation Program, there had often been the argument about increased safety, about efficacy for the individual, but also about herd benefits. ATAGA can provide advice to government, I think, 
based on the science, this is a really good vaccine. But at the end of the day, it's the, the government that makes the decision based on costs, and that's a, a separate negotiation with the companies about whether they can get it uh, at, a, at a reasonable cost. I guess one of the issues about ATAGI is that ATAGI now finds itself giving advice about vaccines in a pandemic. And many would argue that perhaps there should have been a splinter group or a separate organisation to deal with that because it presents many challenges, including the fact that this is a highly dynamic situation where we're learning new things all the time, you know, adverse events that are emerging that perhaps weren't anticipated at the beginning that do mean they need to incorporate that advice and change it. So, and that's very hard for the general public to understand because they think, you know, traditionally when the government gives advice about vaccination, off we go, we implement it and things tend to be rolled out very systematically. This is a different beast and I guess that's one of the things that we'll, we'll perhaps reflect on in time that perhaps ATAGI may not have been the best group to be dealing with this particular scenario, that we perhaps needed more of a pandemic focus. Again, resourcing to deal with the amount of information and evidence for every single event that occurs with this pandemic is very resource intensive. So ATAGI has been able to focus usually on one vaccine, take for example, human papillomavirus vaccine, where we were able to incorporate evidence, do evidence reviews in a very staged, controlled way because we knew that this vaccine was coming. It wasn't a pandemic, you know, we could roll it out. But this is different. So they're on one hand trying to give advice in a highly dynamic situation where things are changing all the time and having to incorporate evidence from other countries as well, you know, what's coming in. Now we're going to have to be facing questions about, you know, booster doses, for example. There's going to be a whole lot of evidence that will need to be accumulated about that. Where is it being done? What's the evidence that it works? So, so it's a huge, it's a huge project. And I think you could actually have an army, or not an army, but a very large group just looking at vaccination in a pandemic. And I think Atagi probably, they do a fantastic job and they've got wonderful people involved in that. But I think the resourcing for this sort of undertaking is, is substantial and I think in hindsight we'll probably say the target may not have been the best group to be dealing with this and it's not to say the individuals on the target shouldn't be involved in a pandemic um, vaccination rollout plan but I think it, it requires a different kind of entity because it, it's hugely resource intensive and people want to hear the evidence you know in a very uh, real-time way you know what's the evidence today Already, you know, if you look up ATAGI and, and get try and get a sense of, well, what are they saying about revaccination? We kind of feel that it's not real time. It's sort of from wave one. We're not keeping abreast of what's happening in real time. And, and that's no criticism of ATAGI, but I just think it's hugely, it, it, it needs to be hugely resourced, this sort of undertaking. Thank you, all of you. That was a hugely stimulating discussion. And in particular, getting all of your various perspectives from Caroline from the ministry, and Professor Wang Nath and Dr Gilroy from ID and Immunology, it just really tells us that sometimes we operate in small bubbles and can't quite see the ocean, so to speak. Vinny, just to wrap up, do you mind just giving us three take-home points about the paper? I think the three take-home points from this paper are, one, this is, once again, a rare disease, that we should be keeping this differential in our minds, particularly if they fall within, within the time frame. And lastly, the paper reinforces that we've got a robust sort of pathway to follow in the ED in order to sort of capture these patients. I think that's the, the main three things. Thank you so much. 
now we've got our second interlude segment by Professor Swaminathan, who is going to talk to us about something that I think is a really valuable reflection for all of us as clinicians, which is the experience as a patient in the hospital. Thanks, Sharice, for asking me to do the interlude. I thought, considering this is an emergency podcast, it might be topical to, uh, to go into this issue that I had um, last year and still ongoing. So last year on Father's Day, I decided to treat myself to a ride on an electric bike, which I've been boring my wife for years about. So I actually hired one. And about a kilometre from home, I skidded on some rough dirt. And I wish I was going at like 50 kilometres an hour, but I was going at probably five kilometres an hour. I fell onto the left side, holding the handlebar, and I knew straight away I'd broken multiple bones in my left elbow. So I sort of limped to the local tennis court and there were some tennis players there who were able to call the ambulance. I, I was just holding my arm. I, I knew that something bad was happening. And, and the first thing the ambulance asked me is, do you want to go to the public hospital or do you want to go to the private hospital? <laughs> and, and since I've been paying private insurance fees for a long time, I said, of course I want to go to the private hospital despite working, of course, in the public hospital pretty much all my career. So this was a real eye-opener for me. This is really the first time I've been a, a patient, an inpatient inside a hospital. Well, since I was a young kid, I used to go to hospital a lot with asthma. So I found the whole experience quite, quite unique. So the first thing is, is it penthrain? That thing that you suck in, is it penthrain? I was high as a kite on this penthrain. So I hired a bike from 99 Bikes and I was, for, for whatever reason, I was singing 99 Luftballons, you know, the German song. <laughs> and so my wife came to visit me in emergency and she wanted me to shut up because I was just singing 99 Luftballons. <laughs> that penthrain, I don't know what it is, it's good stuff. The interesting thing, I, I suppose I was in a fair bit of pain and, and I remember the doctor coming around and here I am probably seeing my 99 roof balloons in the background and I could hear her talking to the nurses outside saying, oh, he's okay, he's not in much pain. But I was, you know, it sort of made me a bit more aware of, you know, the interactions where you're actually close to the patient, I can hear what you're saying. So you have to be a little bit careful about that. There was a huge delay in getting an x-ray. It took four hours to get an x-ray. I knew I'd broken my arm, but it took four hours to get the x-ray. It was a real eye-opener in terms of that aspect as well, in terms of there's, you know, just because you go to going to a private hospital, things just don't come out on a plate. It just depends on what's, what's happening at the time. The other eye-opener was the, the fact that in a private hospital, they're trying to set up the whole thing for you. Here's a specialist, you know, organise the operation for you. It's going to happen despite the fact that, you know, we sort of asked around to say, okay, who's going to be the specialist? Who's good at doing this sort of stuff? And we did, we were very lucky in terms we did manage to find someone. It was a sort of interesting experience having that happen to you. And, and, and the other thing, of course, is going for the operation. I had to have pins and plates put in. And I remember waking up from anaesthetic and it was a horrible experience. I just remember there's all these machines beeping around you. Lots of people, I was confused. And, and it sort of hung around for, with me for a while. Jeez, that, that's what happens when patients wake up from anaesthesia. So again, it was sort of another bit of a light bulb moment in terms of what's, what's happening in hospitals. And I suppose the other thing is I didn't really see a lot of the doctors there, had a lot more interactions with the nursing staff. So, so again, it gave me a lot, a lot of insight into how it would feel being a patient in a hospital. And it was, I was there literally only over for, I think it was there for two nights and then, then I went home. 
also gave me a little bit more idea of you know people who have say a disability in terms of I, I had a lot of people coming up to me and say can I do this for you can I do that for you and I was going no no I can do it but you know that must happen a lot if you've got a disability people want to do things for you all the time I think what it really showed me was that I had a much better insight in terms of the frustrations of being a patient in hospital delays in terms of getting tests done things like lack of communication and, and I suppose it also taught me how quickly you can go from being relatively healthy to requiring a lot of help uh, in a fairly short amount of time. So, so yeah, it was a real eye-opener. I haven't been back on an electric bike. I'm not allowed to, I don't think. I'm not allowed to sing either. So there's lots and lots of things have changed since that particular episode. But look, I, I think in, in, in many ways, it's also taught me probably to be a little bit kinder or understanding of patients on their perspective of how the hospital experience is. And, and trying to sort of, I suppose, improve my game a bit to sort of reflect reflect that. I think the irony is that I, I reckon if I went to a public hospital, the x-rays would have been faster. I would have been put in the back slab and what have you. So so I, I think it also taught me how, you know, a public hospital, the care in a public hospital is actually very good. Despite me working in the public hospital, I, I didn't recognise that, if you know what I mean. So I, I think it, it actually you know, taught me a few, few lessons there as well. Thanks, Professor Swaminathan. That's a really interesting insight. So that brings us to the end of part two. Thank you so much, Vinny, for an excellent presentation. We really appreciate Dr. Gilroy, Dr. Swaminathan, Dr. Prisna, and Dr. Bain for setting aside time in, in your really busy schedules to join us. Again, the link to the paper will be in the show notes, and please contact us with any feedback or commentary at westmedadjournalclub at gmail.com. Stay tuned for part three, where we'll be discussing COVID therapies.